Hi, I'm Andrew. Welcome to the Review of Two Dice Geoengineering podcast. I'm here today with Marina Elena Borath. Did I get that yeah. right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I had to I had to try about three times to practice that. And we're going to be talking about biochar and CDR. Uh, and appropriately, she was um, almost as slow arriving on the podcast today as her sequestration method is. So it's good to see that you're living your brand values. Before we get started, started i understand that you've already listened to a review or two episode or two and um, particularly our most recent one about make sunsets on which you had a couple of comments and you actually shouted out in that episode weren't you so it's appropriate to uh, get your thoughts on the matter so do you want to just give us a quick recap because you had a thing or two to say about make sunsets didn't you you weren't I... very impressed <laughs> yeah i was i was heavily underwhelmed but I think you have said already everything about this topic in, in your episode. This was why I was so satisfied about this one, because I think the biggest issue is that uh, solar radiation management scientists have done a very hard work in building up trust over decades to do research on this topic, um, which is very important. And these two boys playing around and, and having watched too much superhero movies or whatever, they just crushed this kind of trust they other people have built up. And now the opponents of SRM have everything to, to slow down or stop this kind of research. And um, so so I'm coming from Earth system science and, and considering the, the chemical cycles on the Earth and so. And so if we if we look into the world, you can see that in the next decade, our emissions will not drop in a way they should drop. And we also see that CDR will not scale in a way that it should scale. But in the next five to eight years, we will cross the limit of 1.5 degree global warming. So uh, the, the urgency to maybe use SRM is growing every day. And therefore, I think research on SRM is, is crucial. It's existential. And um, make sunsets did its best to to crush everything. So every every kind of trust the scientists have built up over years. So if I would, well, that's very damning, I, and it's, I'm glad that you've articulated your views. But I wanted to particularly draw you on your actual Twitter spat that you had with make sunsets because you had a little bit of a ding dong with them, and it was quite <laughs> fun for me to watch. So. Like I, uh, I was reciting this on the show where we covered Make Sunsets. Yeah. But I'd like to actually hear it from the horse's mouth. So, um, what's your uh, what's your take on that little ding dong that you had? Um, I don't know. You know, I do CDR. I don't do SRM, so I don't understand a lot of that thing. But I understand that there was not any science involved in this action at all, and it was just. Um, yeah, we're not, bothered, we're not bothered about the science. We're more bothered about the entertaining spat yeah. you had. So I, did you it, or did you yeah, not I, tell I, them to go the fuck home? Yeah, yeah, because you know um, the, the the CDR and SR. No, that well, the CDR market I see is growing rapidly, and there are companies on the market that sell just bullshit credits. And the we, we have to take care that we that everything we do is based on on evidence and and has a science base and. If I ask them, like, where where's the science in your project, and, and do you have even scientists involved, and they block me, sorry, but that's that's so unprofessional, and I'm afraid that companies like Make Sunsets, 
erode the whole market for for reliable carbon credits or cooling credits well i'm i don't you know have a strong view on these things i think you know i've raised some reasonable criticism i just wanted to read out a little bit of fan mail that we got before <laughs> we uh, before we kicked off the show so um here is peter dines this morning telling us exactly how great he thinks reviewer two is sounded like a bureaucrat book when in fact they are highlighting the truth srm is inevitable so it's good to see that our work is widely appreciated within the community anyway we're going to be getting onto the subject of your experiment now my understanding is that the biochar advocates are a little bit like the jehovah's witnesses of um uh the uh, uh carbon dioxide removal world because well you know they they um they're always knocking on your door to talk to you about biochar yeah. and you were doing something completely different. So in my experience, the best way to find out if somebody is involved in biochar is to just not mention it in front of them. And uh, within 15 <laughs> seconds, they'll have told you if they're involved in biochar. And yeah, they'll continue to do this every time you open your mouth. So biochar so, is uh, Yeah, biochar is definitely the new vegan. The new vegan. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, so... I come from enhanced weathering at, at first, <laughs> so I'm also very new to this biochar thing. I'm working on this project since September. I'm involved in the Copdown project and ocean alkalinization and so on, and I'm pretty new to biochar. I work in this project since September, and so at the beginning I thought like, okay, it's just you make coal out of biomass and then you have some stuff you can dump in your soil or uh, use as a building material or so well, you say you say coal i mean is it really coal i mean chem it's black and it's got carbon in it and is yeah. it really that similar to coal or not yeah it's like coal yeah it depends on how how long and how hot you um pyrolyze it so pyrolyzing is pyrolysis is burning procedure and depending on on yeah how hot and how long you do this you can produce lower or higher state of coal up to graphite like um, substance okay, well we're going to get into the technicalities in a bit but yeah. i'd like a bit more background information first so yeah. you're a carbon weathering person so you know a sensible if slightly tedious geochemist is a typical kind of carbon we removal weathering in person and and then you've got into these uh communities of uh, aging hippies who like to get <laughs> soil under their fingertips and uh, wear leather wide brim hats and uh, have grey bushy beards yes, and uh, they have. do their own home composting right you know yes. they're, 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 they're quite different people aren't they so you're you're used to doing titration and they're used to picking up earthworms and remarking on how wonderfully girthy this particular earthworm is in their compost heap right so yeah is there a bit of a culture clash between these two communities? Uh, absolutely not. No. Um, so first of all, um, some some of the biochar people look like this, yeah, but also some look like normal people. <laughs> look like normal people, <laughs> yeah, rather than hobbits, right? <laughs> yeah, um, uh, yeah. So it is not a clash because I was I was on a, on a conference recently with all these biochar people, very kind people. And I could explain very well how the biochar will benefit from enhanced weathering and the other way around. And if you talk to biochar people who apply it in soil... You, you talk to biochar people. I mean, that, that sounds risky yeah. in itself. Okay. Well, I, I, I try and avoid that. But hey, you're welcome to it. Each and to your own. Um, 
How well did this go? Did, I mean, did they let you go after the end of the conversation or were you still there five hours later with them talking about the benefits of biochar? Well, it was interesting because at the beginning of the conference, they thought I'm a student uh, because I look younger than I am. And, Do you still um, get ID'd when you buy a drink or not? Um, no, not, not that. But sometimes I get asked how my master thesis is going or so. And okay. I'm in my in my third year of a postdoc right now. So yeah. <laughs> um, well, they're just but, flattering you. That won't happen one day, and yeah. they're angry about it. I know. Yeah. So it's okay. But, you know, if you come with new science and they they don't trust you because they think you're a student, it's it's a bit disappointing. But on the second day of the conference, I was starting with my um, with my talk about how biochar can be doped with minerals and um, they were pretty impressed because one thing of biochar is when you deploy it in the soil uh, you lose some of the carbon over time so in the first years you lose about a few percent and over time the loss is getting smaller and smaller and um, so I think carbon like credit... sort of the biochar equivalent of radioactive decay then right and no microbial decay no, I get it. But, you know, it's not obviously radioactive decay, but it's a similar uh, yeah. fashion. So you, yeah. you have a lump of radioactive material and over time it will uh, decay radioactively until you get more and more stable isotopes and you get less and less of your unstable isotopes. It's not a, a wholly dissimilar process to that, is it? Well, yeah, it depends on the microbial activity. Yeah. And so if you have a, for example, if you have a soil w which has a lot of carbon and a, a lot of huge amount of biota, they are very hungry, and if you put some biochar in it, they 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 will consume it very fast, faster than okay. if you have a soil cool. which is very sandy, for example. Cool. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. I want to get some background information in first before we get into the nitty gritty. So, you're you're at what institution? I'm at the University of Hamburg. Okay, and um, have you been there for a while, or or is that you one of these people who've had to move around with their careers? I moved around a little bit, so I studied here in Hamburg. And I got to know my my current boss, Professor Hartmann. He's uh, yeah one of the leading scientists in enhanced weathering on this world, I would say. But yeah, after graduating, I, I changed for my PhD to become a polar scientist. So I did paleoclimatology in Antarctica. Have you been on a boat? Have you been on a boat yeah, and spent the winter times. in the polar night? Yeah, no, polar day. Because you... In Antarctica, the weather is so rough during winter, you have to go there in the polar day. All right. So you can't, I mean, I, so you haven't been frozen into the Arctic Ocean for six months. No, no, we, we had, uh, no, no, no. That was another project. But when I was in Antarctica, we got stuck in the ice several times in the middle of the summer. Yeah. Okay. That sounds intrepid. What's it like? <laughs> is it fun or not? It was, yeah, it was impressing. And uh, because Antarctica is, is, it is so far away and it is so, um, how do you say, like life is not welcome there. So we as humans, we don't belong there. And you could really feel this. We were at some point in Antarctica where the last ship has been 20 years ago or so because it was very deep in the ice and we had minus 28 degrees. Cool. So you're, you're genuinely in a place where no, where no one had been the last 20 years. Yeah. So it's like exactly. you were the first people that millennium to be there. Yeah. Like, That's kind yeah. of awesome. Yeah, and it was so cold that we could not work anymore because um, we have some some probes going down the water, and there was the risk that it would the freeze gliders. in the water. Yeah, 
the yeah, gliders, gliders yeah. but also cores. So I, okay. I took some, some sediment cores there. So what's it what's it actually like living on one of those polar research ships? I mean, like, is it quite comfortable, you know, if you've got, you know, Netflix and all of that kind of stuff, or is it <laughs> extremely primitive and you're sort of having to have a toilet that's basically just a wooden seat on the side of the ship and that kind of stuff or, or what's, what's it like it's it's neither nor so i think one thing is very comfortable that you will have some kind of room service so the cleaning for example but also the cooking and so is done from the stuff so we don't have to uh, worry about this but you don't have privacy over the whole time so it, i was on an eight week trip there and whenever so you don't have a fixed schedule to work. So whenever the ice conditions allow you to work, you have to work. And sometimes you have to work 24 hours and then you have three days completely free and you're bored. And it's also, it's, it's usual that you always have a much bigger plan that you can realize at the end. So you're always working too much and stuff. Um, but yeah, so... Um, on the other side, you have amazing sunsets and sunrises, and you see whales and 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 yeah, rare animals and penguins and so. And uh, so it, it it's shifting between hard work and and pain in your arms and and legs and whatever you have, and a very unique experience and and experiencing nature in, in that kind of way. Well, that sounds absolutely fascinating. In fact, far too interesting for reviewer two. So I'm going to bring that to a rapid close now and start to talk about boring things, okay. which is your day job, obviously. So oh. um, without without further ado, could you progress to the um, abject tedium that is watching enhanced weathering take place? So if you could give us an introduction, introduction to what the or pieces or POWs project or whatever it is that you say, to describe your project and tell us, you know, where it, where it is, how it's run, how it's funded. Give us a lowdown. Yes. So um, my project is called PyMix. It's an acronym for several uh, things that are in uh, are going under PyMix. So Py stands for pyrogenic carbon. This is when you turn biomass into um, pyrogenic carbon. Uh, we 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 call it biochar because it's very uh, simple. And so you cre create pyrogenic carbon uh, when you heat biomass and you burn it, but without oxygen. So you have a coalification, you can say, and you produce coal um, out of biomass. The second part of PyMix, the me, is the mineral weathering. So you already learned with Ingrid how mineral weathering or yeah, weathering itself works. So carbonic acid, water. So just just to just to interject on that, so that. What you're referring to there is Ingrid Smet, and we yeah. did quite a long so, podcast with her. We broke it into two parts, mainly because it was funny to call it Smet 1 and Smet 2, which is the name for <laughs> British smart meters. Uh, I don't know whether you have those in Europe, but it was a, a childish a play on her name. And I thought, why not? But if you'd like to catch up the basics of enhanced weathering, which she described as less interesting than watching paint dry, a decision which the listeners can make for themselves then you can listen back to a podcast and see whether it is or is not more interesting than watching paint dry. So uh, that interjection done and dusted, please do carry on explain more about what you're doing. Yeah, so second is mineral weathering. We use basaltic rock powder 
Uh, and yeah, we have weathering there. That means water, carbonic acid and minerals react with each other. The carbon dioxide uh, from the air is turned into bicarbonate. This is a species dissolved in water. And via groundwater flow, this bicarbonate is transported to the ocean where it can remain in the ocean. Or uh, uh, the other way is it gets precipitated as a carbonate. So with calcium or magnesium, it forms a mineral and is then uh, yeah, re-injected to the geological cycle. So that's enhanced weathering. Have to be turned into bicarbonate before it's any use, or can it be useful as a carbonate as well, or not? Uh, it first turns into bicarbonate and then becomes a carbonate. That's a two-step reaction. So when you say it first turns into a bicarbonate, does that happen in soil, or does it turn into a bicarbonate in water and then in flow water, to the ocean in and then turn into? Okay, so step me through how and where, because I like to go into a bit of detail on this. So step me through exactly how these reactions are happening and where and what conditions you need for that to happen. Oh, <laughs> we are working on it. <laughs> so what do you mean? So under which conditions does... Well, yeah, you say it turns into a bicarbonate. I, 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 I didn't realise that the, the enhanced weathering went straight to bicarbonate. I thought I thought the end result was uh, you, start, you turn silica into carbonate, but you're saying it goes into bicarbonate. So is that bicarbonate? Does that bicarbonate become part of fluvial waters? Does that does that do the bicarbonate out ions flow out immediately, or do they can conduct some kind of enhanced weathering process in the soil? How does that work? Um, let me think. How can I explain? So the carbonic acid is deprotonating. Um, what does that mean uh, for people like me who don't really uh, yeah, understand yeah, chemistry? So, properly? Uh, now you got me. <laughs> um, so uh, when water and CO2 mix, they form carbonic acid. And in in the process where a mineral weathers, uh, you have the release or the mineral breaks apart. The, the metals, so the, like calcium or magnesium, they are dissolved in the water. Then you have the formation of silicic acid. And the silicic acid can only form if it takes up um, hydrogen atom from the carbonic acid. And then the carbonic acid turns into bicarbonate. I hope I got it right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'm, I, I can never follow this. I'm going to have to get a yeah. chemistry book out and see how that works. Um, um, I, I, have a, I, I have a science lab which explains this very well, but unfortunately it's in German. But maybe one day I can make an English version out of it. Because well, the talking, chemistry... talking of German, you have an annoying habit of tweeting in German, don't you? Because I follow you and then you occasionally say things in German. And it's like, well, you know, that's not helpful, is it? Because like 99.9% .9 of your followers are going to be able to speak English, but like probably only 20% of them are going to be able to speak German. So I. But um, there is I'd an automatic to... translation. In, yeah, but then you've got to press buttons and stuff. It's like, I want to hear every word of your wisdom, but I can't because it's half of them are in German. It's very annoying. Yeah, so, Andrew, I learned English. Now you have to learn German. I don't have to learn. Look, I'm British. If we want to learn, if we want to speak to somebody, we invade their country and we make them speak English. It's what we've been doing for a thousand years. And we're not going to change it just for you. So, yeah. right. So, given us an idea of this enhanced weathering stuff, and Ingrid is obviously giving in a lot more detail on that so people can come back go back to her podcast and look at yeah. that but what we're here to talk about really is this sort of the synergistic remixing of uh, biochar with enhanced weathering so mm. why what's the point i mean is that isn't that just like having kind of 
chocolate bacon it's just two things that should be rightly kept well away from each other and you're combining them in some kind of unholy mess it's indeed like a little bit like chocolate bacon yeah so how do i uh well chocolate bacon isn't a good thing is it i mean there's no reason to put chocolate and bacon together yeah maybe 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 our version is better (laughs) Yeah, so it's um, better than chocolate bacon because that doesn't yeah. sound very good, to be honest. <laughs> so, if you can explain why it's better than chocolate bacon, we'd be very good. Yeah. So, so what we do when we combine this, um, we call this mineral doping of biochar, and um, so we combine these two things. And um, this is based on some some previous studies uh, who studied like how do the minerals that naturally occur in the soil interact with biochar. So. There were a few studies on it and they saw like, okay, if you have clay rich soil or a soil with certain minerals, um, the biochar is losing carbon slower than normal because you have some kind of coating around the biochar that protects the biochar from microbial degradation. The clays, for example, so clays are very fine, silty suspensions that then get compacted uh, into soil. So you'll often get clays forming downstream of glaciers, won't you? So these are often rocks that are being lifted up, and some of those might be igneous, silicic rocks that are then being eroded into fine rock flower silts, which then coalesce into clays. And then so that a clay-rich soil is, I would guess, in some cases, quite like to have a high concentration of silicate. So you're having like a natural experiment that's a little bit like combining enhanced weathering and biochar, yeah? Yeah, so clays, clay minerals are often product of weathering because the soil is nothing else than weathered rock with some life in it. Um, but this is how soil forms. So at the beginning, you have bare rock, and then you have some some fungi or some some uh, like some some simple kind of plants that break up uh, the rock and uh, help to weather it faster. And then you have a buildup of soil over hundreds and thousands of years. And, and clay minerals are some kind of end product of this weathering. And if you now have clay in combination with biochar, you can see that, for example, that these very small particles are clogging the pores of the biochar. And so there's less surface for microbial degradation to attack. And therefore, the biochar remains longer in the soil. And this is one of the advantages. So increasing so, so the... What you're, okay, so what you're actually saying, this is quite a surprise because this is like the opposite. I thought what you were doing is combining biochar and enhanced weathering. And so that the enhanced weathering is kind of working synergistically with the biochar. Uh, but you're actually describing a process where you're, you're almost kind of clogging it up. So you're using the enhanced weathering material not to kind of enhance the weathering process by stimulating soil activity and breaking down the rock grains you're actually using it as a kind of gumming up you're using to block a process Uh, yeah this is one completely the opposite of what i had in my head right yeah so there there are many different ways how these two can interact with each other so one part is uh, like the the small particles or if you have you can have the case that you have formation of calcium coating around the biochar. In this case, you have a protection of the biochar from carbon loss. But on the other side, you can have, if, if we, if we combine basalt powder with a biochar, um, we could expect that we have a faster weathering of the basalt powder. 
Well, how does that work if if all of the rock grains are gummed up in the pores of the biochar? How does that happen? Yeah, so biochar has um, is, is a very low dense, high surface uh, material. So it has lots of pores, and therefore it has a huge surface. So it can take up a lot of water and also a lot of nutrients. And this water holding capacity of the biochar is is optimizing the hydrological condition in the soil for plants, but also um, uh, you have more humidity and, and water interaction between the basalt powder and yeah the water in the soil. And therefore, I expect for our project that we will see an, a faster weathering rate than without biochar. So you're saying that you've got two effects. So you're promoting the weathering, the enhanced weathering process itself, but then the enhanced weathering, either is it the source material or the products that end up clogging up the pores in the biochar so that the biochar itself can't degrade. That, that's yeah. quite interesting. Yeah, so on the one way, we have this basalt powder, which is very fine, and it could clog the biochar pores. But we also have, due to the weathering um, over a longer time frame, we have the formation of clay minerals as a product of this weathering. And then we have, again, clay minerals, which also could block the biochar. But um, so is we, the main benefit that it enhances the enhanced weathering becomes further enhanced, or is the main benefit that the um, that the biochar doesn't break down as quickly, or is it you know kind of even question. Stevens a bit of both? Yeah, I think a bit of both. This is well, I know uh, you haven't published your research, but we kind of want the answer no, right now. If that's all right. We haven't started yet. <laughs> So, I want to know. I want to know the outcome of your research before you start. I mean, surely, like you, you know, start this, this research with a reasonable idea of what's going to happen, right? So, you know, you must have some idea of the processes and some like there are error bars, and you're expecting to shrink the error bars with your research, right? But you don't generally start out research with no idea of what's going to happen. So, if yeah. you could give us some clarity beyond that, would be great. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the proposal for this research uh, project was written some time ago, and there. Based on what we know about biochar and enhanced weathering, we expect some co-benefits. So we could expect this longevity or increasing the longevity and the stability of the biochar in the soil. We can we could expect that we have an enhanced weathering because we have more humidity in the soil. And the soil is more drought resistant also because of um, the yeah the water. So, so to be clear, so to be clear there. Enhanced weathering doesn't work in dry soils because yeah. it's an aqueous process, right? Yes, and so exactly. what you're doing is by adding biochar, which is a porous, it's not a spongy and it's not squishy, but it's spongy and it absorbs water. Yeah. Um, then that'll keep the soil wet and mean that your enhanced weathering process can go on for more of the year. Exactly. Another point is that uh, there are many studies proving that if you add biochar to a soil, you also increase the soil biota. Um, so organisms really like this. Also, plant roots are in a healthier state. And these things help to increase the weathering rate because soil activity, like worms or microbes digesting small, small basalt particles, is increasing the weathering rates. And if you have healthy roots, you, have, you, have, you can grow more biomass on your field and more plant activity also means more root respiration. That means uh, the plants can put You're some... You're sounding like one of those biochar people now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like biochar is the source of, all, source of all the good in the world. You know, if you want to say solve world hunger and prevent war, then biochar is the way forward. 
So how do we know that Vaishar actually does all this stuff? I mean, and does it do it evenly in all soils or is it only a wonder material in certain specific circumstances? So um, the, I think the interested interest in biochar was raised when they found old soils in Africa and Amazonia. So the tropical regions are uh, under, they have a very high weathering due to the humidity and the temperature. And the soils in these regions are very nutrient poor. So the indigenous, um, they started to uh, increase the soil fertility by adding biochar. And you can find soils with biochar that is several thousand years old. So, and I think this is the starting point where the interest in biochar was rising. So you can dump carbon for a long time in the soil. And at the same time, you can improve your soil, uh, soil health. Because to, to get a bit technical, I think those are called highly leached lattisols. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. At the same time, due to uh, yeah, industrialized agro-farming, we also have a very high degradation of soils and finding something that can improve your soil health is very helpful. And at the same time, you can store carbon in, in the soil. So biochar so, comes so with what, a lot of co-benefits. What effect on the methane and N2O emissions uh, does it have? Because when you fertilize soils and use them for modern agriculture, they can be the source of methane. So rice paddies notoriously are bad for methane. Not only those soils can emit methane in other circumstances as well, particularly if they're quite waterlogged. And um, fertilizing soils can re result in nitrous oxide. So if you could clarify what effect, if any, biochar has on soils in terms of gas emissions, that'd be helpful. Yeah, so I'm not a biochar expert, so I cannot go into detail with this, but some studies showed that the leaching of nitrous oxides was decreased. So at and one time they increase plant health and, and microbial activity, but on the other side, they can decrease the outgassing of yeah nitrous oxides. Don't ask me how this is done, but it's happening. <laughs> So or didn't have to invite a biochar expert. We will not be inviting any biochar experts no? on this podcast. I know no. some very nice people. You, well, you can interview with, them. With so beard, you know? To talk to them. Yeah, if you want to talk to people with beards about biochar, that's absolutely fine. Send us the audio. This is an open invitation. Anyone in the field, you know, any, anyone with any degree of scientific expertise at all, if you want to interview somebody, and put the audio up and review it too. Absolutely fine. Do your own interview. Send it to us. We'll give you some guidance and help if you want. We'll do all the editing for you. We're not trying to, you know, be reviewer too. We're all reviewer too. Anyone can do this. We've had loads of guest interviewers come along and do one or two episodes in the past. Everyone's welcome to do that. And I would you had very bad experience with them, right? No, they like uh, we had Gideon Putterman come on and be a guest interviewer quite recently, and he did the what is currently the best performing episode of. 22 and might end up being it probably end up in second place because we we're doing very well on the one that i mentioned with make sunsets that's getting an awful lot of downloads but gideon he only turned up once or twice maybe and he got our best performing episode currently the best performing episode so you know don't think that the guest interviewers are an inferior species they're not but you're welcome to guess anybody else is welcome to guess and if you would like to interview a biochar person so that i don't have to um, then please do so because I, I would love to have some free audio that means i don't have to bother arranging it so go and talk to a beady biochar weirdy if you wish we can we can also but anyway i would like we can make a deal like 
Okay. In one year or so, we have the first results where I can talk about, and then I can also tell you why biochar decreases the nitrous oxide outgassing. Okay, well, you can come on and talk about that if you like in due course. That'd be good. <laughs> so anyway, back to your experiments. I want, you, I want you to actually talk me through what your plans are, because how well funded are you? How many people work on your team? Where are you working? What exactly Ooh. are you doing? How long will it take? You know, just give us the whole the whole thing. People want the detail. That's why they're here and not on Twitter scrolling through 140 characters. Yeah. So um, we are funded for three years. We have three institutes involved, the University of Hamburg with the enhanced weathering, but also soil scientists. Then we have the Potsdam Institute for Climate Change. Oh, I don't, I always forget the English the name. The PICS, isn't it? The PIC, yes. So yeah, they, we, we had the last, the last um, one, we had a, I did a podcast yesterday about carbon taxes and the guy oh, yeah. was, uh, was Max Franks uh, and he was, he's from PICS. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, so, I won't interrupt anymore. So, Tell us more. It's, it's okay. So, so they do all this modeling stuff. So the eco- economic feasibility of this approach, we have the, um, the University of Geisenheim. They are our biochar experts and they also do Geisenheim? The, that sounds like Geis- a completely Geisenheim made is in the middle. Place. Yeah, it's in the middle of Germany, and they make very good wine I, I on don't biochar you. soil. You just, made, you just made up an entire town and an entire university. <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> no, they. they, like they ge- you like it? I tell you what. I tell you what. You're just like geologists because geologists make up rock names all the time when they're talking yeah. about about like oh, I've got a piece of footballite here, and it's like yeah. it's just something they've made up two minutes ago, and now you've kind of extended on this like fantasy life of geologists they have to do to make their existing life seem more interesting uh, by inventing entire towns in Germany rather than just inventing rock types as is traditional. But anyway, tell us about your imaginary university. What do they do? At my university or the other? No, the imaginary one, the one that you just made oh, up the, the, five minutes Geisenheim. ago. Yeah, so Geisenheim, they study um, all kinds of agriculture. So they also work with photovoltaic in combination with agriculture. This is one project. They work a lot with biochar. They make greenhouse experiments. They make field experiments. So they are the ones who are outside. Uh, and in Hamburg here, we do mainly lab experiments. And at the end, we throw together... So they're, they're similar to Redbourne or Silso in the UK. So what's the name of the institute? It's the longest running field experiment in the world, the one that's at oh, Redbourne. Yeah. This and Albans in the UK. It will come to me the name of the research institute, but I can't. I can't remember it right now. It's very. It's quite near my house. You could like. It's a long bike ride, but you could get there on by bike from my house. So you're collaborating with these agricultural people who I yeah. imagine they wear chunky knit jumpers and drive tractors and things like that, right? Yeah, and we also have involved the Itaka Institute. So Itaka is pure biochar institute. They, for example, they produce the biochar that we will use in our experiments, and they test the properties like, um, yeah, what you can test on biochar. <laughs> and well, it sounds like a bit overkill to have an entire institute for biochar. I mean, they've finished yet. I mean, they've yeah, not, yeah. studied everything. Yeah, at the beginning, I thought like, okay, it's just burnt biomass, but it's more complicated than you think. Or it's not complicated, but you have so many possibilities because... Well, you can burn some properly weird stuff. I was reading today that you can make biochar out of dung. So... Not only are they beardy, yeah. weirdy soil scientists with muck under their fingernails and earthworm admirers, they actually literally burn dung. 
right? Yeah. So in in meat production, they have a lot of waste, like bone meal, or they have a lot of meat which is contaminated with virus or hormones, and so and you cannot use it in any other products, but you can pyrolyze it and make biochar out of it, for example, or sewage sludge, or uh, you could also pyrolyze plastic if you want. Just make the need sure uh, to, that there are no harmful substances released. Why do you need to here. pyrolyze plastic? I don't know. I think you turn it into, I mean, the, 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 the product, like the biochar, is, is more like the, more comparing to natural coal, while plastic is, is still, um, it's very hard to degrade. And in nature, if you dump plastic there, it's, it's broke down to nanoplastics. And I think nanoplastics is a big, I, I think if you pyrolyze plastic, you produce uh, a kind of biochar, which is not as harmful as the plastic itself to the environment. But to be honest, I don't know why they pyrolyze plastic. I mean, at the end, it's just to get rid of it and to turn it in a state where it's, yeah, where it's less harmful than plastic itself. Okay. So talk to me about the kind of the type of experiments you're doing, what soil types you're operating on, what crops or plants are you using? How many trials have you got going? How large are the fields you're using? You know, do you <laughs> have to have a square kilometer to do each test or a one meter by one meter plot? <laughs> Yeah, so most of it, I don't know, but I can tell you, like, we have a strategy. So um, we produce different kind of biochars. The one is based on wood chips. Another one is based on straw. And there are two strategies how to dope biochar with minerals. So the first is you put wood and basalt powder together and put it into the oven to pyrolyze it and then you bake it together that's the one strategy and the other strategy is just to produce but pure why, why would you do that i mean i don't understand i mean like point you like you don't the biochar is thermally enhanced weather material is thermally stable so what's the difference between baking it together and then just stirring it together once it's cooked it seems like you are unnecessarily heating up a lot of rock and any carbonates in that rock would tend to outgas co2 so what's the point yeah, so the one point is when you heat the biomass, you lose a lot of mass. So if you um, pyrolyze one ton of biomass, you maybe get about 500 or 300 kilograms of biochar. You lose a lot of weight. But if you add minerals, you gain a lot of more biochar plus the weight of the mineral that you added. So, Well, is that just because you're not degrading the mineral? So it's just shrinking, shrinking like... Only, let's say, for example, if it's a 50-50 mix, you've got a ton of mineral mm -hmm. and a ton of biochar, mm -hmm. and then you cook it off. You wouldn't expect the mineral mass to change much. So it's only yeah. really the biomass that's changing. Or are you saying that the mineral is somehow inhibiting the loss of mass from the biochar, which would be a lot more useful? Yeah, the second. So mixing minerals with biochar um, decreases the volatile and liquid part of the biochar. Because if you produce biochar, you get three products. You get a pyrolyzed gas, a pyrolyzed oil, and the biochar. Um, and depending on how much you heat it and how long you heat it and what you add to the biomass, you can shift the parts of these three products. So sometimes you have you have 50% of your biomass is turning into pyroly pyrolysis gas. That's then, then, then you have a huge loss of mass, of course. But if you add something, you can reduce this part to 30%, maybe, 
and then at well, the so, end, you so have I get I get the principle of what you're saying, right? And yeah. and and that adjusting that balance is what makes charm industrials process work, right? Yeah. So charm industrial inject bio oil into like basically it's like a backwards oil where you're taking an organic oil and then you're injecting it into the into the rock strata, right? Mm. But what I don't get is I, I understand the words you're saying and the sentences <laughs> you're using, but I don't understand the scientific principles. But why why does it make any difference? adding by um, rock powder when you're cooking biochar. I don't understand how it's controlling the biochar degradation in the oven. So the idea comes from another strategy because there were some studies putting fertilizers on biomass before the pyrolysis. So this showed that if you have, for example, a biomass which is rich in phosphorus and you add potassium fertilizer, you create potassium phosphates. And these potassium phosphates are highly soluble in the soil and can act as potassium phosphorus fertilizer in the soil. So by adding some substances to the biomass, you can impact or you can, yeah, you can influence how the nutrients in the biochar are available to plants. And based on this, we thought like, okay, what happens if we add basalt powder? Um, yeah. I mean, that sounds kind of obvious, right? You, you know, you're adding part of an NPK fertilizer kit and then you end up with something that's a bit more like NPK fertilizer than it was before. It yeah, doesn't sound, but you know, surprising. You're... But what, what I don't get is that how are you controlling the gas? So what's the chemistry behind controlling the loss of carbon? What is the rock doing? Because when I cook stuff, if I cook something in an earthenware pot in my oven, so if, say for making a stew or a casserole, I put it in my oven in an earthenware pot. The earthenware pot doesn't react with the stew, right? It doesn't, it doesn't change the stew in any way. It's inert, right? It's almost like a glassy substance that you put around the material. It doesn't have any real chemistry with whatever it is you're baking, right? And, and what you're saying here, here is that you've got something equivalent, this equivalent of tiny little cooking pots made out of tiny little bits of powder, but for some reason they're kind of reacting with or changing the cooking that you're doing in this oven skin and it's apparently reacting with the biochar in some way that controls the amount of gas that's produced by uh, the by the pyrolysis process how is that actually working on a chemical level yeah so to be honest we also don't know exactly what will happen when we add rock powder because this is the first time we do it so far people just have added fertilizers or stuff like this so and if you add fertilizer you you have three parts that happen or three things that happen during the pyrolysis so the first is that you have simple physical coverage so the compounds you added physically protect the biochar and, and influence the, the yeah the the physical properties of the biochar the second second is that you have different chemical bondings forming. So you can have metallic organic bondings between the, the organic carbon and the, the metallic. So like if you add calcium or so, then you have these kind of bondings forming, which also increase the stability of the biochar. And the third thing is if you add, for example, calcium hydrox calcium oxide or magnesium oxide and in this oven, you have the outgassing of CO2. You can immediately create calcium carbonate. So you have something like a direct air mineralization in the pyrolysis process. Um, this is what I can say about this. 
Um, so, but yeah. yeah. So you're taking what? Run me through that chemistry again. So you've got calcium oxide. So you've got quick lime, and then you're surrounding quick lime with carbon dioxide that's coming off the biochar as you bake it, and it's reacting straight away. But that, yeah, this that would be temp example. temperature okay. threshold effect because if you take that too high, calcium carbonate would degrade into calcium oxide at a high high temperature. Oh that's yeah, how that's how a lime right. kiln works, right? Yeah. So yeah. I'm surprised that you know as you heat it up to what four five hundred degrees centigrade you're actually getting a reverse process if it's temperature dependent we tend to go faster at cooler temperatures not faster at hotter temperatures if if you get the reverse reaction when you get it very hot how's that yeah so to be honest i didn't think about the slack line thing so if if you add um, calcium oxide you can have the formation of calcium carbonate in the pyrolysis um but i didn't think of reverse um, reaction it may be it may be possible because the pyrolysis is not taking very long, so it can take between fifteen and sixty minutes. And I'm not sure how fast the the, the burning of the limestone is is occurring. Do you know this? I, I don't know how the chemistry of limestone calcining varies by temperature, but it surprises me that you've got a process which happens threshold temperature. I think it's about six hundred degrees centigrade, where you're saying that it improved when it goes up to 400 degrees centigrade. I always thought the reverse happened. And I understand that the weathering would happen anyway at cooler temperatures, so I'm not sure the advantage of adding calcium oxide. Are you suggesting that the um, that the particles of biomass get sealed up by the rock dust so that the carbon can't escape as it's heated? Is that is that the process you're describing? So, um, there are three parts. So once you have a physical coverage of the biochar from the substance you added, the rock dust, then you have, we, we, we talked about this possible absorption of um, CO2 when you add calcium oxide or magnesium oxide. And the third thing is that you create new chemical bondings between the metals in the, in the minerals um, that you added and the organic carbon. So there are a lot of possibilities how the organic so carbon... It's actually a chemical process. You'd end up with metal carbon complexes, right? Yeah, like this, yeah. And are they good? Like, are they things you'd want? Or would that be something that would be harmful? Um, well, I would say they are not harmful. <laughs> I didn't think about this, but uh, from, from the studies that have done so far, I guess they just tested this process to create a more stable biochar and they didn't test the, the environmental impact. But that's a good question. Well, that seems a bit remiss. I mean, the obvious biological comparison is, I think they're called pyrosol, where you get forests that burn or you get volcanoes that land lava on top of forests. And then you get soils which have got carbonated material in them and where the soil itself has been heated to a very high temperature. I'm not, I'm not quite sure whether they are called pyrosols or not, but I know that that process does happen in nature. So can you not find natural analogues of this elsewhere? I, I haven't looked on it yet. <laughs> Well, yeah. there's something you can do this afternoon. Yeah. Um, yeah, but so, on the other side, we can just produce it in our oven and then ana analyze it to see if there are any harmful substances. Well, you can, but, our, but finding a soil <laughs> that has existed for thousands of years, so you can see the breakdown products, would tell you yeah. a lot that you can't learn in your plot. So you talked a bit about your oven, but not giving as much technical detail. So if you could give us an idea, is your, is your oven a jar or is it the size of a house or what and if you talk to us also about your farm plots and what you grow on them because you didn't get around to talking about that either so yeah so i don't do the biochar pyro pyrolysis burning stuff so this is done by our 
co cooperation partners, but pyrolysis plant can have different sizes. So you can do it in a little bucket in your garden. Uh, you can do it in a, a oil keg like this size, or you can build a bigger plant where your oven is uh, maybe two, three, five meters in diameter, and you have truckloads of wood going into it every day. Yeah, so the plant we are using, I really don't know. I uh, have to ask my colleague, my biochar expert. So what's your precise role in this project then? What exactly is it that you do? So my role is to do lab experiments. That means we have plastic columns where we put in soil mixed with biochar, soil mixed with basalt powder, and also soil mixed with the mix. So either we mix biochar and basalt powder together, or we use this special mineral-doped biochar where we pyrolyze both together. So we put, we, we set up a lot of different columns and we rinse them with water and see what comes out uh, in the water. So, um, and on the composition of the chemistry in the water, we can see how good the weathering is uh, is progressing, how much for example, organic carbon is washed out of the soil and, and so on, yeah. And so the thing is, we do this for the first time and we really don't know what to expect. And so we just um, make make a pilot study like, okay, do we see weathering, is the weathering better than uh, pure basalt and, and so on. And so and the big question is like, does the combination of the biochar and the basalt rock give us further advantages, further co-benefits than using only basalt or only biochar. And this I'm going so, to... So you're basically stuck in the lab doing lots of titrations. That's what it comes yeah. down to, right? Yeah. Okay. The lab has no windows. So what, what does your typical day look like in your windowless trog trogolodite laboratory of your titrations? What do you do? Does anyone talk to you? Or are you just locked in the basement and they throw samples <laughs> down a hatch? Yes, I haven't started yet because we're still waiting for the biochars to be delivered. But when it starts, I will go there maybe three times a week and put water on, on the, these columns. And once a week, I get the little bottle that is underneath the column and I uh, yeah measure. I do titration in the lab. We measure the ionic composition. That means anions and cations. We might also measure some trace metals. Um, what else do we do? Some organic carbon. And so so we do yeah, a lot of lab stuff then. And um, the, the very special thing also in, in our, my working group is that we are working with CO2 boxes. So in a natural soil, you have this root respiration. You have an elevated CO2 concentration in the soil air. And if we now do our experiments in the lab with normal air, so the 420 ppm CO2, and um, this does not really reflect the soil conditions. So we build boxes that are gas sealed and we fill them with uh, CO2, different concentrations of CO2 to imitate the elevated CO2 concentration in the soil. And so it looks a little bit like, you know, these boxes where you have little babies in and then you have gloves and you go through it and then... Incubators you know? for premature yeah, babies. Yeah. But it's like yeah. you're you're basically creating the, a cross between a gas chamber and a baby incubator, like some yeah. kind of horrific geochemistry horror movie, right? Yeah. We'll keep the babies away from you. <laughs> do you get do you get to play with lots of fancy pants, expensive equipment, or, or are you just using stuff that you'd find in a school science lab? 
it's I think it's very basic. Yeah. So the 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 columns are made out of plastic. Uh, the the coal or the biochar and the, the rock powder is is just yeah. For most of the people, it's just dirty stuff. Um. Um. What else do we have? CO2. Well, so, so, yeah. to su- so to summarize your life. You spend yeah. your days in a windowless room with people giving you bits of dirt to test with school science lab Definitely. equipment. Yeah. And the only people you get to talk to are beardy weirdy biochar people. That sounds and like enha- my idea and, of science hell. Do you enjoy your work? And enhanced weathering people too. because But you are the enhanced one. weathering person. Yeah, well, our whole group is doing enhanced weathering and I'm the only oh, right, one okay. with biochar. Right, okay. In the so you, you're, you're the kind of crossover person. Yeah. That sounds like my the idea weirdo. of science hell. Do you, do you enjoy what you do or not? Yes. Okay. Why? What's fun <laughs> about it? I, I like to... Um, so I'm a big fan of enhanced weathering. Otherwise, I wouldn't work on it. And I and I think combining it with biochar is a very good idea because um, both methods provide lots of benefits for the soil. So if you add basalt to the soil, you have a fertilizing effect like with magnesium and calcium and iron and stuff. And biochar um, improving the soil, but also likely the enhanced weathering process. And so my hope for this project is that we can show that we have an increased carbon carbon drawdown by combining these two methods. Because I'm sure that we can show that uh, if you put both together, we can grow more biomass on the same area, for example. We can also... Um, um, so. It is also possible that we have the formation of more soil organic carbon in the soil. So I think there's a lot of possibilities to increase the ca- carbon uptake. And at the end, I hope that it's like the carbon up- uptake from enhanced weathering plus biochar plus X, because we have some synergies. And I think looking also on on, on global chemical cycles and sustaining healthy soil for agriculture and human nutrition and, and food security and stuff. And so I think this is much more than just catching carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. It's also, yeah, improving. Uh, so you're you're turning into one of these panacea biochar people. So your interest in this <laughs> is based on your um, uh, on, on your belief that it will save the world, basically. That's why that's why you like working on this. You, you're, you're a convert to the cause. 